This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. I didn't want to leverage. I wanted to know that I had my money parked, but that, like a bond, I would be getting my monthly cash flow uh, from the rentals that I was collecting. So the idea for me is in my asset allocation, it didn't make sense to take as much risk and to have this is a, a little bit more of a safe zone for my money. This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we're talking about investing in real estate as a piece of our overall portfolio. Not putting all of our family's eggs in the real estate basket, but just a portion. To help us understand why this is a smart investing strategy for our family's future, I've invited Doc G on the podcast today. Doc G is a physician, a father, and the co-host of the What's Up Next podcast. This is a show focused on financial independence and taking your family to the next level. Given that Doc G has achieved financial independence already and he's a multi-millionaire, I'm sure we're going to learn a lot from him today. Welcome to the show, Doc G. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. All right. Well, let's start with real estate right away. So, Doc G, why is it important for you and your family to invest in real estate? So I think real estate is a really important part of diversification. So you can go ahead and invest in the stock market. You can do stocks and bonds. But the problem is when the market goes down, it tends to go down together. Uh, So what I'm always looking for is a form of investment that doesn't correlate well with the stock market. In other words, it moves up or down on its own and isn't really related. And I find that of all the investments I've been able to find, actually real estate is fairly uncorrelated with the stock market. That means that I can depend on it sometimes when the stock market isn't doing so well. And when the real estate market isn't doing so well, sometimes the stock market is doing better. So I like the fact that it adds to diversification. Mm-hmm. I think that's the major reason. There's some other reasons too. Obviously, uh, there's some tax benefits. Uh, so you can take depreciation on your properties. So if you are a landlord like me and you collect money and rent every month, uh, some of that cash flow that you get, you can defer your taxes by taking depreciation on the property. And lastly, I really like this idea of owning your own business. Um, So I look at the asset class, the business asset class as its own separate asset class. Uh, So I think when you own a business, you're protecting yourself uh, in many ways. You're protecting yourself from the stock market, but you're also protecting yourself if you are a W-2 employee, because who knows what's going to happen at work. Uh, Maybe you'll lose your job. Uh, maybe technology will change and you won't be able to do what you used to do. So it's really nice to have a business on the side. And I definitely look at real estate as a business. I love it. That makes a lot of sense. So Doc G, what percentage of your portfolio is invested in real estate? So I have about a third of my assets in real estate and about a third of my assets in retirement savings and then a third in a taxable account. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. I've, I've heard that in the past, about 30% as an allocation for real estate. Uh, Dr. G, one of your articles that I've read uh, talks about your desire to have less doors when it comes to real estate. Why is that? 
So I kind of look at it as the smaller pockets approach. So to me, I'm a busy professional. I'm a physician. I now write a blog and do a podcast. So I don't always have a huge amount of hours to manage real estate. So the idea of having 10 or 20 or 50 doors sounds exhausting to me. And of course, you can use management companies, et cetera, but it takes quite a while to build up to that level. What I found is that with three or four doors, uh, I can own a huge amount of real estate and therefore I can watch the property itself appreciate. So that's one aspect. But the other thing is I get cash flow from my three or four doors. And in a sense, that rounds out uh, my investing strategy. It doesn't have to drive my investment strategy. I have other things going on. I own businesses. I have my W-2 uh, that pays me on a regular basis. So I don't need real estate to fulfill that role that I think a lot of the bigger pockets type investors need. Mm -hmm. For me, it's a nice form of cash flow. It's a way of deferring taxes even further. Um, and you know, it adds to the diversity of my portfolio. And I think for all those reasons put together, I don't need 10 or 20 properties. You know, four properties does it for me. So four is how many you own right now? Yeah, currently I own four rental condos. Okay, let's talk about that. So why condos? Why not uh, single family homes? So I kind of fell into it. Uh, I was living in the suburbs of Chicago and my wife and I were looking downtown and we thought, hmm, it'd be really nice to have apartment downtown that we could go spend the weekends with the kids and we could go to shows and restaurants, et cetera. So we looked around and found actually that there were some condos available that weren't that expensive that were right in the middle of the city in downtown Chicago in an area we loved. Uh, and this was right at the beginning of the market downturn, right? So we're talking about 2007, 2008. Uh, the real estate market was starting to get cheap, and we haggled back and forth and found a condo. Uh, we renovated it to be exactly what we wanted. It was a one-bedroom condo in a high-rise, and we renovated it into two bedrooms. And then we used it for about six months and realized, hmm, we're not using this as much as we thought we would. The kids were still a little too young, so they didn't love sharing a room. <laughs> it really wasn't fulfilling our needs the way we thought it was. So the smartest option we thought we had was to rent it. And the realtor who sold us the condo was a good friend of ours. And she's like, you know what? I have a guy. He may want to may want to rent it from you. The, you know, he just had a divorce. Sad story. But he needs a condo in that area. So we ended up renting the condo to that guy for three years. And we found within a few months that it was an easy thing to do, right? It was really easy to collect the rents. It was really easy to find someone to rent it because this was in a hot area. And the real estate market around us was really starting to crash. Uh, so we knew what renting a condo felt like. We knew what it looked like. And it was hard to find a good single family home that we could rent for enough money to make it worthwhile uh, that didn't require a lot of upkeep. So as the market dropped and dropped and dropped, we started looking for foreclosures and we found foreclosures. We knew certain areas. My wife had gone to college in a really popular part of the city. So we knew that area. And when we saw that there were some foreclosures in that area, uh, we just picked up another place. And after that, believe it or not, we did eventually buy a home in Wisconsin on Lake Michigan uh, for the same reasons we bought the original condo, because we thought we were going to use it. It had some lakefront property. We had beach. 
And by the time we bought it and renovated it, we were kind of like, eh, we're too tired to spend all the money and fill this place up with furniture. So we just started renting that one out too. And years later, uh, we sold it without a realtor to a neighbor for a huge profit and then rolled that into a few more condos in the city. And that kind of is how we're, we ended up where we are now. Now, looking back on it, as I went through this process, I got a lot more savvy. And I realized that for us in this neighborhood that we live in, condos make a lot of sense. And the reason why is if you start reading up on real estate and learn the rules that help you decide what are good properties to buy and sell, when you're looking at a single family home, you're looking at something called the one or 2% rule. So if you buy the house for $100,000, you'd like to be able to rent it for at least 1000 or $2,000 a month to make up enough money for it to be worthwhile. Well, in the areas we were looking at, you'd have to buy a house for three or $400,000 and then you could rent it for 1,500. Mm. So the numbers didn't work out. And even with the condos we bought, we still couldn't live up to the one or 2% rule, but something kind of cool happened. We found that the condos had such low upkeep costs and the real estate taxes were less that we could still not charge as much for rent, but because the overhead was so low for a lot of these condos and they were so easy that we still ended up cash flowing nicely. So for us in our market, we didn't want to go out of state. We wanted to stay with the real estate market we knew that we grew up in, that my wife went to college in or that we had lived before. So these were places where the real estate was expensive and the rents hadn't caught up. On the other hand, the cost of upkeep was so low that the numbers ended up working out just fine for us. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. I have a couple questions that popped out of your response there. Um, first, the property taxes, you said those are a little lower for condos. Why is that? Is that because it's part of a larger building? Is, is that why it's brought down a little bit? I think it's based on that. And it's also based on square footage. Mm. So a lot of these condos we buy in the city, if it's in a hot area, you know, you buy a condo that's 750 square feet or a thousand square feet. Um, that's enough. In fact, people are happy to pay a reasonable rent for that. Whereas if you're buying single family homes, especially if you're buying them in the suburbs, you might be talking about 2000, 3000 square feet. So you're going to pay more taxes. Uh, so when you put it all together, it just works out. And then my other question was, have you had any trouble with the HOA? Because I've heard from people who say don't invest in condos. It's because of the HOA. Have you had any dealings with that? So this is something you do have to know. If you're going to buy condos, you have to be incredibly careful of where you look at. And the reason why is the HOA or the condo association, there are two parts of it. One is the fee. So the HOA fee can be fairly expensive. The first condo we bought, actually the HOA fee is up to about $1,000 a month. Mm. So we don't make nearly as much profit on that one as we do on the other ones that we bought after we got more savvy. But even more important than that is if you are in a condo association and they decide to vote and vote to not allow owners to rent their properties, then you run into big trouble. So we knew going in, whenever we looked at a condo to possibly buy, we found a bigger HOAs that had clauses already in their condo association regs that would not allow them to ban or outlaw rentals, because uh, that would have really changed everything. It would have made it completely not worthwhile for us. That makes a lot of sense. Do your research beforehand, know what you're getting into. So as far as financing, do you guys have mortgages on these properties? Uh, where are you with the financing side of things? So we're pretty lucky. Um, 
because I'm a physician, because we've always been fairly financially savvy, um, we pretty much bought all of our properties in cash. Our first condo we bought straight in cash. When we bought the rental and foreclosure, by that time I had saved up enough cash to buy the second. We did buy our house in Wisconsin, and I did end up borrowing some money from my parents and then getting a line of credit, but I paid that off within a year or two. Um, so, and then after we sold that house in Wisconsin, uh, we turned over all the money we made on that into two new condos. So, right now we own all four properties straight out. So, we never really financed any of them. That's, that's great. Nicole and I are trying to do the same thing. We're trying to save up enough money to buy our first rental property in cash. Uh, why did you guys decide to go cash wise instead of, you know, borrowing at like three or 4%? So again, it really depends on what the place of real estate is in your portfolio. So if you are looking at the bigger pockets view and you want to have 20 or 30 properties, the idea is to leverage, 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 right? You want to do it intelligently. Uh, but you want to leverage up so you can buy a bunch of properties and then start both living on that cash flow as well as paying off your mortgages. But if you're like me and you've already built up a reasonable amount of wealth and you have a high wage earning W-2 and you own some businesses already, the place of real estate is a little different. So in my asset allocation, I wanted real estate to be much more of a safe bet. I didn't want to leverage. I wanted to know that I had my money parked, but that, like a bond, I would be getting my monthly cash flow uh, from the rentals that I was collecting. So the idea for me is, in my asset allocation, it didn't make sense to take as much risk. I needed a hedge against the stock market. It made a lot more sense for me not to lever and to have this as a, a little bit more of a safe zone for my money. Well, it makes a lot of sense to me. That's kind of the way we're 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 shooting for it as well. Uh, let's talk about the other pieces of investing you are doing outside of real estate. So you mentioned about thirty percent in retirement, another thirty percent in brokerage. Uh, where are you investing for your retirement right now? So right now we have multiple retirement funds. Uh, my wife has a four hundred one k at her work. Um, most of that, grand majority of that, is in index funds. Uh, at least about 50% of it is in an S&P 500, 500 index. Then we've got about 20% in international and about 10% in bonds and cash. In our taxable accounts, we're pretty much a three-fund portfolio. Uh, I use Vanguard. We do, you know, I think it's, what, 60% total stock market index, 30% international, and 10% bonds. And then there's a smattering of an emergency fund. But since we, you know, since I still work and I still get a paycheck, I don't worry too much about an emergency fund because there's always cash coming in. And then for your brokerage, what is the purpose of investing in your brokerage account for you? Yeah, so I've kind of worked my life. I guess I should explain. I've got to this point in my work where I've really slowed down. So I was a busy practicing physician. I had my own office. I would work in nursing homes and I was a medical director of some nursing homes and I worked in hospice. And as I realized I was getting closer and closer and then definitely at financial independence, I realized I shouldn't probably work this much. I wasn't enjoying work the way I used to. I was getting burned out. So I decided to pull back. So over the last year or two, I've been pulling back on my blog. I use the term half retirement. What that means is I've gotten rid of everything I don't like at work and now just do hospice work. And for me, the hospice work is great. I actually don't see patients. I manage teams. So those teams include nurses and social workers and uh 
nursing assistants, et cetera. So what I do now is a lot different than what I used to do. I pretty much have meetings on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and then I have Mondays and Fridays pretty much off. I answer phone calls, but I don't actually have to be anywhere. The reason why I'm going through all this detail is I've changed what I do with my finances now because of this. Knowing that I was pulling back at work and moving to just this hospice position and I'm working as a contractor, so I know exactly how much money is coming in. I changed up a little bit of what I was doing with my investments. The first thing I did is, as opposed to reinvesting all of my cash flow that I get from my real estate, I now use that uh, as spending cash, and I use that to keep my emergency fund going. So every month I receive rents, and as opposed to throwing that right in the stock market like I used to, I leave that in a... uh, a balance that I can get at any time I want. So that's the first change I made. The second change I made is I stopped the dividend reinvestment on my taxable accounts. Mm. So in my taxable accounts, when I was a little bit busier with my W-2 and I was bringing in a lot more money, I would just let the dividends keep reinvesting. Now I let them collect. So what I'm doing is I'm creating a steady cash flow so that I don't have to really worry about spending cash. And the reason why is both in my taxable account as well as in my retirement account, I don't want to touch that stuff, right? It, I just want to leave it. It's, it's, it's the same with the real estate. You know, the money that you put into the real estate, you just want to let it sit there and grow and appreciate. So I feel the same way I do about the real estate as I do about my taxable and non-taxable accounts is I just want the money to sit there. I would rather live off of whatever I can skim off of my rent collection and my dividends. And then, of course, I'm still working, so I still collect a reasonable amount of money as a contractor working for a hospice company. But that allows me to protect myself financially, but also live a life where I have enough time and energy to really do pretty much whatever I want. Uh, The hospice work, I do more for the joy and love of it and the social interaction than I really do to support my lifestyle. At what point did you decide to make some of those changes at work? Was there a certain trigger or something that happened? So the trigger was a funny moment, and it actually has to do with Jim Dolly, the white coat investor. So I've been pretty lucky. I grew up in a family that was very savvy about money. And my parents modeled for me great financial behavior. Uh, They did everything that we talk about now as the financial independence lifestyle. So they made a lot of money. They were business people and ran multiple businesses, main businesses, and they also had some side hustles. They owned 10 to 12 properties when we were kids. I remember my stepdad going out and you know, fixing up the driveway and cleaning places and renting them out. So this was all what I grew up with. And they were stealth wealth practitioners, right? They lived on you know, less than 50% of what they brought in. So they modeled for me all this great financial behavior. So I was lucky. As I got out of medical school and started working, I pretty much mimicked exactly what they did, right? I started saving all the money I could. I started investing in real estate and trying to build businesses on my own. So I had the financial backing years and years ago. I probably was financially independent somewhere in my mid-30s. I just didn't really know it. But my life started to change. And one way in which my life changes, I started getting really burned out with medicine. Medicine is stressful and being a doctor is stressful. And I was dealing with the most difficult, painful things, patients dying, sadness, fear, angry patients, because bad things were happening to them and they couldn't get in to see me fast enough. All of this started weighing on me. 
And right at that time, I got a fortuitous phone call. I was in my office, and the background in this is I had been writing a medical blog for years. I started writing about medicine in 2004, 2005, and I started a medical blog. And I had modest success with it. And somewhere back, I think it must have been 2014, I get a phone call, and my secretary says, there's some guy on the phone. And he wants to talk to you about sending you his book. And I'm like, well, who is he? And she said, he said his name is Jim Dolly. And he wrote this book called The White Coat Investor. And he knows you have a blog. And he was hoping you could read this book and uh, review it for him. So I had never heard of Jim Dolly. And I had never heard of The White Coat Investor. Uh, but I said, sure, you're going to send me a free book. Why not? So he sent me this book. And I read The White Coat Investor. And for any of your audience who doesn't know, Jim Dolly uh, has been writing about medicine and finance for years. He is really the go-to site uh, for physicians and really any high-income earners uh, who are interested in personal finance and, and financial independence. And I read his book, and it was a huge epiphany. It was like, wait, I have enough money. I'm financially independent. I could stop working today. And I realized that fairly quickly. I read his book, and then I went to his website, and then I found other websites and what I always tell people is the funny thing was that moment wasn't triumphant. Uh, that moment was actually kind of scary for me because yeah. all my life I had identified myself as a doctor and I knew I was getting tired of being a doctor. I knew that the lifestyle was wearing on me, but to go from discontent to all of a sudden, the real possibility of leaving was a lot to swallow all at once. So it took me a few years of building up the courage, um, studying finance better. I had a personal uh, financial advisor at that time. And so it took me a while to learn about finances enough that I could take over managing my own. Hmm. All of this took time. And then I had to build the courage. And part of building that courage was actually starting to write about personal finance, starting to blog about it. That was my accountability. So I started writing about personal finance in December of 2017. And every day I'd go and write something new and put it up on the blog. And that became the diary of change for me. That became the place where I first wrote out my plans and then eventually built the courage to act them out. And so that's kind of what led me to where I am today, a life in which I now only choose to work at what I enjoy I've let go of pretty much all those things that were bothersome and worrisome and now try to pursue creativity and blogging and podcasting. And I do some public speaking about medicine and personal finance, too. So that all of this change has been it's taken time and it's been a work in progress. But I've been slowly inching my way to finding the right mix of work and play and joy uh, that fills my heart. That's excellent. I, it sounds like this book really enhanced your life. Yeah. I mean, I had all of the skills, but none of the vocabulary. And that's what Jim Dolly's book did for me. That's what the personal finance community and the financial independence community has done for me is it's given me the vocabulary and the knowledge to take the skills I already had mm -hmm. and create a better life. We'll be back to the show after a word from our sponsor. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, 
crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing coast fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? (laughs) If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot, and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes, and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. And use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up. The code is valid until April 19th, 2024. Marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. Thanks for checking out our sponsors, everyone. Let's jump back into the show. of the things that your parents did to help you along this path. Obviously, it's a great learning opportunity for other parents that are listening right now. So it sounds like modeling was a really big piece of the puzzle for you. Did your parents provide you any other words of wisdom or advice as you headed into adulthood? Believe it or not, they really didn't. I mean, we talked about being smart with our money. We talked about not spending more than you have. I remember seeing my mom and dad even looking in the newspaper at the Wall Street Journal at their stocks and seeing how they're doing. Uh, But we never really discussed the nuts and bolts. Um, My parents didn't tell me what to look for when you were looking at a rental property. Um, They didn't tell me how to build a business. Instead, I saw them. Uh, And it's interesting because I think a lot now about that with my own children. I truly believe that modeling is the way to do it, but I do think a lot more about the things I say to my kids um, because I think I'd rather have them know maybe a little earlier in the game. Mm -hmm. So I, again, I was lucky because I think I just naturally took to what they were doing. Uh, But with my own kids, I want to give them some of that vocabulary that I learned earlier. And, you know, the truth is my parents didn't really have the vocabulary. And that was one of the things. My mom is an accountant and she's my accountant. And I remember talking to her about, well, when can I retire? And she said, oh, you probably can retire when you have $10 million. And I'm like, well, why? And she 
couldn't really tell me. And so I went to my financial advisor. I said, well, when can I retire? I'm getting tired of medicine. I, I have all this money saved up. When can I retire? And he did all these Monte Carlo estimates, et cetera. But you know, the funny thing is he never really even looked at what I was spending every year. Hmm. He said, well, what do you want to spend every year? And I said, ah, $250,000. I had no idea. I had no idea what I was spending at that time. Um, but no one ever said, well, why don't you track your spending for three months? Look at what you spend, look at what you need, look at what you don't need, figure out your yearly needs, multiply it by 25 or 30 or whatever you decide is the right measurement for you, and then make a real valid estimate about what you need. So I don't think it's that my parents didn't want to teach me. I don't know if they truly had the vocabulary either. I think they just knew what to do, but didn't always know the explanations of why. So given that, now that you are a father... What will you be doing to give your kids that vocabulary? What are you going to be doing to teach them the ropes of personal finance early? So there are a few things that we do and we're very intentional about. One is that instead of giving them a weekly allowance, we give them a yearly allowance. So our kids get roughly $10 a week. So we give them $520 on January 1st. And then we pay for food and we pay for school supplies, but they actually have to pay for their own clothes. They have to pay for their own candy and they have to pay for their own toys. Uh, so first and foremost is we teach them this idea of what is budgeting. Um, and this has done a few things. One is, you know, if they go spend too much money early on the year, they feel it later on the year. Uh, so it's a really good learning process. The other thing is, when you only have $520 for the year and you need to buy clothes and toys and candy, you start looking at eBay and Craigslist and you want to go to the thrift shop and the used store and the Marshalls and the TJ Maxx. So what I found is that my kids are a lot more intentional about how they spend money. Uh, even at a young age, they're learning how to budget, uh, but they're not just learning how to budget. They're also learning how to be fairly frugal. Uh, we don't tell them they can't have what they want. We tell them you've got to figure out a way within limits to get what you want. So I think that's one way we do it differently with my kids than my parents did with us. Um, the other thing is I really try to make sure I get them involved in everything I do. So I may not specifically say this is how you start a business, this is how you rent out real estate, but I take them to every closing. I take them with me when we go interview new potential tenants. Uh, if a uh, faucet is leaky or there's a problem and I decide the few times that I do to go fix it myself, I bring my son or daughter or both with me. So I really pay attention to how I act around them. And then I make sure I set the example that will serve them for the rest of their life. And I think the last thing I do is I do sprinkle in a little bit more of the lessons than my parents did. Uh, so I'm intentional about talking to them about what is the stock market? What is an index? When you buy a stock, what exactly are you buying? Compounding. Like my parents never really talked to me about compounding. I'm sure I learned it in some middle school or high school class. But I talk to them about compounding and I talk to them about front loading, right? So if you build wealth when you're young, when you're 20 and 25 and 30 and you put that money away and it compounds, you'll find that when you're in your 40s and 50s, you have a lot of money. And then when you have money, you have choices. Mm -hmm. And so that's something my parents just assumed that they were going to work the rest of their lives. And both of my parents, I was lucky enough, both of my parents love their work. So it 
they weren't looking to get out. They weren't looking to retire early. They loved what they did. With my kids, I want to let them know how to build wealth so that then they can pursue whatever work brings them the most joy. And so if I can help them get there at an earlier age than maybe I did or maybe my parents did, it just means that they can start doing the things they truly want to do at a younger age. So I think when you put it all together, those are the kind of things that I'm, I'm trying to do with my kids uh, to get them to a place where they can live a life of real purpose, uh, one that fulfills their needs more than just trying to make the mighty dollar. I love it. That's incredible. Uh, what age did you start doing the annual allowance? So we started with each kid around 10. So okay. we gave them a little bit of time, right? So my son right now is 14 going on 15 and my daughter is 11 going on 12. Uh, so my daughter, this is her second year and my son's been doing it for a little bit longer. So with $520 per year, I'm sure there's been a few mistakes for a 10 year old and, you know, 14 year old. Uh, but you probably see those mistakes as a learning opportunity, right? Yeah, for sure. And it's funny, you know, the funny thing, too, is to see how differently my kids react. So my daughter is incredibly careful, right? So she's very careful. Every time she purchases things, she looks at them. Do I need it? Don't I need it? Et cetera. My son will spend he he gets, you know, the money burns a hole in his pocket. <laughs> But it's hard because I'm trying to teach him this lesson, but he's also incredibly savvy and he's found a way to fix electronics. So like if you break your iPhone, he'll take it, he'll order a new screen online and he'll switch out the screens and it'll cost him like $40. And so he charges people $80 for this, which is a lot less than if you take it to one of the fix it stores. <laughs> so he's incredibly savvy. So he's got this thing going where we have people on the block and they just ask him to come fix things and he'll get on YouTube and figure it out. He's much better than I am. Like he, our, all of our toilets broke in the house and he went and fixed them all. I couldn't, I spent like two hours on it. I couldn't do it. And he went and within like an hour he had them all fixed. So he's got a racket going. So he spends money, but then he goes and finds ways to make more. So he's always rolling in the green because he finds a way to get extra money, even if he spends it. That is so cool. I'm sure that makes you super proud <laughs> to see your boy do that. So uh, outside of, you know, teaching them these lessons and uh, encouraging them to, you know, think out of the, outside of the box entrepreneur wise, uh, are you planning on leaving them an inheritance, leaving them any money like through a UGMA or UTMA or anything like that? So we did that, uh, you know, years ago, our financial advisor suggested it and we did it and we are doing 529 plans. Mm -hmm. uh, I have mixed feelings about it. So first and foremost, I did receive some money from my grandparents. Um, years and years ago, both my grandparents left me a little bit of money. So I've gotten inheritances and it's been wonderful and it's been great. I think my kids shouldn't have to pay for college. So I probably will pay for college for them. And my goal would probably to be leave money for my grandkids or my great grandkids. But I think it's, you know, it's a fine line to walk because I think if you give the kids everything, uh, they don't learn to have skin in the game. And when they don't learn to have skin in the game and they don't have the pressure of becoming a success, it can stunt their growth. So I do want to leave them something. I do want to take care of them. And I think education is important enough that I will contribute and I will pay for their education, but I'll probably make them get a job during college. Maybe I'll make them pay for some of their living expenses. Um, I'd like it for it to be that nice mix of knowing that money's there, especially in emergencies, but also knowing that you've got to make your own way in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I've, I've heard a quote, it's something along the lines of, leave them enough to do something, but don't give them too much to do nothing, something like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's the truth of the matter is 
I think you don't feel good about yourself if you don't make your own wealth. Yeah. I, yeah. I really, I really think so. And, and if we can instill anything in our children, I'd like them to be financially savvy, but more important, I'd like to instill them a sense of confidence and joy in who they are. Mm. And I think if I rob them of this individuation that I think every kid needs, they need to break out of their family and become their own person. If I rob them of that, I think it's going to be harder for them to be happy in life. And and as a parent, what do you mostly want? Do you want your kids to be okay? I mean, yeah, I'd like them to be rich. I'd like them to be financially stable. I'd like them to be a lot of things. But in the end, I just want them to be okay. I want them to have all the tools they need to succeed. And so I think both my wife and I really think about that. We want to make sure we give them what they need, but then they also fight and learn and grow up too. Mm. Sounds like a great way to grow up. Absolutely. So outside of uh, Jim Dolly's White Coat Investor book, do you have a real estate book you'd suggest? Yeah, for real estate, for sure. Um, Anything put out by Chad Carson or Paul Thompson. (laughs) I love it. So Chad Chad just wrote a book, Retire Early with Real Estate, and Paul Thompson, my co-host, is going to be putting uh, out a book soon, which I think deals with more than just real estate. Uh, but both of those guys have figured it out, right? So they found, and again, this is more the bigger pockets view than the smaller pockets. Uh, but I think at least if you're going to learn the basics, the bigger pockets guys are the ones because they're going to know a lot more because they've done it over and over and over again. Um, but either of those guys can teach you a lot about real estate. I definitely second that notion on uh, Mr. Carson's book. I am enjoying it a lot right now. Uh, so I highly recommend that. I'll put that in the show notes. And uh, definitely when Paul's book comes out, I will do the same. So we've uh, we've ran the gamut here with our interview. Um, Doc G, where can people follow you and connect with you more? So there are a few different ways. Uh, one is Paul Thompson and I co-host the What's Up Next podcast. You can find that at iTunes or Stitcher. We're really proud of it. We do panel discussions uh, where we talk about next level financial independence topics. Uh, you can also find me on my blog, which is diversify.com. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Twitter is at Doc G Diversify. And, and Facebook, you'll find me as Doc Green because they won't let me use Doc G. Uh, but you can find me at any of those places. Well, I will put all of that information in the show notes for everybody to check out. And everybody, if you want to add another great podcast onto your list, check out What's Up Next. I love what they're doing over there with great panel discussions around financial independence. Doc G, thank you so much for today's interview. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on. This has been a blast. I learned so much from that chat with Doc G. He's had such a load of success in his life and he's he's given back so we can all learn and help our families thrive here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with doc g number one less doors can be better It was a huge relief for me to hear that amassing dozens and dozens of rental properties isn't a requirement for real estate success. Four, four paid for properties gives Doc G plenty of financial freedom and diversification in his portfolio. Obviously, it definitely helps that they are paid for. (laughs) And there's nothing wrong with having rental properties with mortgages and plenty of them. It just doesn't feel right for me. 
it's a lot of the conversation that Nicole and I are having right now just feels right to go totally all in cash. It's going to take us a lot longer, but um, seems seems right for us. I am all for less doors and less stress. <laughs> Number two, condos can work in the right market. I've always thought that condos were something to completely steer clear from. It sounds like Doc G has found a way for condos to fit his situation pretty well. He pointed out that you definitely need to do your homework beforehand in researching the condo association fine print. You don't want an HOA ruining that steady stream of passive income you've got going. Number three, show your kids the real estate ropes. A combination of modeling and slightly involving your kids in the business of real estate definitely worked wonders for Doc G, both as a son and as a father. Now he's honoring the hard work that his parents did for him by helping his kids understand the important personal finance vocabulary. It's important to him. I I like how he pointed that out. That way his kids can keep strengthening this awesome family tree for generations to come. So those were my top three takeaways. Number one, less doors can be better. Number two, condos can work in the right market. And then number three, show your kids the real estate ropes. It's not every day you get frank, honest advice from a financially independent multi-millionaire. Aren't podcasts cool, man? (laughs) So take this advice and do your best to create some freedom in your lives. And remember, your kids are watching. Now it's time to announce the Money Master of the Week. Katie from Newlyweds Debt-Free Journey recently shared some awesome news on Instagram. She was accepted for a new job in a department within her company and received a 15% pay raise. That is some abuco bucks. (laughs) Since she and her husband are working on building up their emergency fund, they're going to use this extra cash to pile into savings. And their long-term goal is to buy their first house together. A lot of action for this couple in less than one year, guys. They have uh, paid off $15,000 in debt in six months. They saved up six grand in cash. And now with this 15% raise, man, what a year. That is how you start off your marriage, man. (laughs) If you want to follow Katie and her husband, Anthony, on their path to financial freedom, check them out on Instagram at Newlyweds Debt Free Journey. That's Newlyweds Debt Free Journey. Katie, thank you so much for sharing this news with everyone on Instagram, and congratulations for being our Money Master of the Week. Do you have a recent financial victory that you want to share on this show? Send me an email at andy at marriagekidsandmoney.com or leave me a voicemail at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash voicemail. I would love to hear from you and celebrate your victory. Before we go for the day, I'd like to ask you to do any one of these three things to support this show. Number one, subscribe to my channel on YouTube at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash YouTube. The majority of my interviews are captured on video, so you can check them out there. 
Number two, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player so we can hang out every week. And then the last one, number three, share this episode with a friend who wants to invest in real estate and create an awesome family legacy like Doc G. You can find this show and all the links and resources mentioned at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash session 127. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash session 127. And if you're new to the show, I would highly recommend you check out session 116, the 10 steps to young family wealth and happiness. You can find that at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash session 116. It is a great place to start. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Marshall Field. Buying real estate is not only the best way, the quickest way, the safest way, but the only way to become wealthy. Best of luck with your real estate adventures. Carpe diem! Carpe diem! 